Our text this morning, Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Please open your Bible or navigate on your device. The text was read as service began. I will read it again as we go through the study. You can read it for yourself as we're doing that. Uh, all the, the opportunity for you to let the Lord speak to you through this word, spiritually speaking, to hear from the Lord. Verses 1 through 10, chapter 19. The topic, four hallelujahs are sung in heaven on the verge of Jesus' return to earth. The title of our message, the four hallelujahs of the apocalypse. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, again, Lord, uh, a unique combination of living stones to make the temple of the Spirit on earth. Uh, we're here, we're listening. We pray that you would speak to us, Lord, uh, between our soul and our spirit in that secret place where the Holy Spirit can minister to our hearts. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Coca-Cola is the second most widely understood term in the world, according to linguists. The first is OK. Coke in 1993 launched a soft drink named OK Soda. They wanted to own both the most recognized words. It was a miserable failure, discontinued in 1995. What's with Coke anyway? I mean, can't they just be number one? Why are they always changing their uh, formulas and coming out with new Cokes and stuff? I mean, Pepsi is so far behind, it's not even funny. I don't know. I don't drink sodas anymore. Hallelujah is a universal word understood all over the world. In the 1980s, we took trips to Beijing to smuggle Bibles. The missionaries told us that if we got separated from our group or otherwise found ourselves lost in communist China, walk around in public calmly saying hallelujah every now and then, and a Christian would hear us and help us. Hallelujah resounds 24 times in the Bible where you'd expect it to in the book of Psalms. It is proclaimed in only one other place here in chapter 19 of the revolution, revolution, revelation. I was thinking about the communist revolution. Or I just mispronounced the word, one of the two. I'm still, I'm still able to correct myself. Um, I, I haven't lost it yet. The Bible version you are reading might uh, say Alleluia instead of Hallelujah. Not to worry. Hallelujah is Hebrew. Alleluia is Latin derived from the Greek transliteration of Hallelujah. They both mean loosely praise the Lord. So why are we hallelujahing in chapter 19? I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, praise the Lord, you are parted from the brothel. And number two, praise the Lord, you are prepared as his bride. Let's take a look at verses one through five first and how we've been parted from the brothel that is the world at large. The Revelation describes tribulation Babylon as a harlot. Chapter 17 identified her as a religious system that is, quote, a great harlot and the mother of harlots. In chapter 18, the city of Babylon is where the nations drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, the kings of earth committed fornication with her. And then here in chapter 19, we're going to read again that she is the great harlot. The Old Testament portrays the nation of Israel as the wife of Jehovah and exhorts the Israelites to remain faithful in a marriage. The writers of the New Testament consider the church the betrothed bride of Jesus Christ, and we are exhorted to remain chaste virgins to him as we await his coming for us. 
Throughout the Bible, being unfaithful to God is illustrated graphically by comparing it to fornication. It is the spiritual equivalent of infidelity and sexual sin by a spouse, like someone married or betrothed being with a harlot. Babylon will be a literal city during the future great tribulation. It is true, nevertheless, that the world is a harlot. Satan is its pimp. Believers in Jesus are bombarded with seductive solicitations to material and spiritual fornication. And so let's pick it up in verse 1 where it says, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. We can rejoice that there will be a great multitude in heaven. All the saints of the church age will be there from the day of Pentecost until the resurrection and rapture of the church. Multitudes of believers who were justified by faith in the Old Testament will be there. The tribulation martyrs will be there. Angels, cherubim, seraphim, and other supernatural creatures will be there. Animals will be there. We know at least horses will be there because Jesus will come back from heaven riding one and we follow him on our own horses. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his to offer freely by grace to whomsoever he will. And he offers it to all because Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. It says here he's coming in glory. The second coming will be quite an unveiling. Jesus will break through the clouds, clothed to conquer, riding his great steed. Uh, some wonderful things accompanied Jesus' first coming, angels singing uh, and, and such, but uh, his second coming is going to be all glory all the time. He'll establish his kingdom to be honored by all on earth with power to rule over the earth. Verse 2, true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. We discussed the destruction of both mystery Babylon and municipal Babylon in chapters 17 and 18, respectively. She is the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, making the entire world, in a sense, as an illustration, a brothel. God has the undeserved reputation of being haphazard in his judgments. The things that happen to people don't seem to make sense. Good people, young people suffer tragedies while the wicked prosper. All of us have had things perhaps in our own lives or in the lives of others, some right here in this church, some right now, where you just, you, you just can't figure out what's going on. Why that person? Why now? Why not that person? Uh, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Sufferings are not God's judgments. We live in a fallen world. Sin is responsible for the seeming haphazardness we witness. God is busy providentially forwarding his plan to redeem sinful men and restore ruined creation. Bad things happen to good people and to God's people while God is being long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all would repent and come to salvation. Look, sometimes you just have to lock into the understanding that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And so when we start thinking about why is this person suffering, why them, not the other person, to live is Christ. They can still give a testimony to Christ. They can be a witness for the Lord. And to die is gain. We need to become people who don't fear death. 
We live in a fallen world and God could have come last week. He could have come a decade ago. He could have came 50 years ago. But then would you be saved? Would I be saved? Would we be on our way to heaven? What about people you are praying for? I, I want the Lord to come before I'm done this morning. Amen to that, right? But I have family members, friends, neighbors, relatives that aren't Christians. It would really affect them. And so God's long suffering, it waits. And I can afford to wait with it because I have the grace of God uh, to get me through day by day. When God does judge, he is always true to his holy and loving nature. His judgments are always just right. Non-believers scoff at the second coming, but there are something like eight times as many references to the second coming in the Bible than there are to his first coming. Verse three, again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, the atmosphere on earth isn't going to be smoky forever like it is here with the fires. This is a way of saying that the destruction is final. It's a literary term, meaning that it will be final. The world is quite seductive, perhaps more so than ever now that technology has advanced, just as morality is again hitting rock bottom. I mean, societies, I'm not a big student of history or anything else for that matter, but uh, uh, societies fail. All the empires that have come before us have failed. They, they fall into gross immorality. They spiral down in the worst possible way. And so to compare, you know, Rome with America, or it, it's hard sometimes. But I will say that we have uh, a greater technology for sin than any other generation has ever had in terms of the ability to sin and sin being right in your face all the time and the seduction of our hearts. Then it says in verse four, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, alleluia. We've previously encountered this combo of 24 elders and four living creatures. They like to sing together before the throne. Nowhere in the Bible are we told the identity of the 24 elders, nowhere. I spend a little bit of time on this each time we encounter it because we are used to hearing teaching uh, that the 24 elders represent the church in heaven. But the way you get to the calculations, how are there 24, what does that mean? Uh, really, it's so complicated that you start to think, I wonder if they are the elders or some other group. We're not told who they are. Our take on it now is that some, uh, there are a divine council of supernatural beings that appear several times in the Bible who assist God. Uh, in the Psalms, in the book of Deuteronomy, we've referenced them before, I don't wanna go back into it, but it's likely that it is this supernatural council and not the church. Don't get me wrong, the church is in heaven, but we are a bride making preparations. We're not the 24 elders before the throne. Amen, of course, a statement of agreement. The creatures, the elders, everyone else in heaven agrees with God's judgment, his timing, and they praise him for it. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. The voice probably of an angel gives instructions for worship. It is time for his servants and those who fear him to sing. What an honor and a joy to be identified as a servant who fears the Lord. What a simple but profound definition of a Christian. I don't know if you ever just walk through cemeteries. Don't admit it if you do, it's kind of weird. 
I don't either, but I, I do uh, usually arrive early for graveside services and I, I walk around and read tombstones. A uh, lot of weird stuff on people's tombstones. Uh, I, I don't want to get into it, but the weirdest one, of course, is the Raiders tombstone. I've told you about it before, right? Here, I hope it doesn't belong to one of your relatives. Uh, but at the Hanford Cemetery, there's a, there's a, a big black obelisk tombstone that is dedicated to the Raiders and uh, this person being a Raider fan. And so, uh, I don't know, I, I, I think it's a little bit much, but that, maybe that's just me. Uh, anyway, uh, I, what do you want on your tombstone besides pepperoni? Remember, remember that? Wouldn't it be great to just say his servant who feared him? What a simple, profound thing. Would, would to God that would be true of each of us, that we are a servant who fears the Lord. That would be a great job description. Tomorrow when you get up or tonight when you're ready to go to your job, whatever it is, uh, it has a job description and I'm sure you do it well. But your spiritual job description is to be a servant who fears the Lord and to be following his leading in your job to uh, share Christ. Small and great reminds us God is no respecter of persons. He'll save those who seem great and he'll save those who seem small. There might be more small in heaven because the great have difficulty appearing foolish and humbling themselves. In fact, Paul the Apostle says not many mighty will be in heaven because they, they trust too much in intellect and strength and status and things like that. Uh, I remember one time when I was still a salesman, one of the realtors took me aside and he says, Hey, uh, did you like, were you like a, a, you know, a degenerate gambler? I go, no. I, you know, I didn't like gambling. He goes, well, were you like a, you know, an alcoholic? I go, well, you know, I, I abused alcohol. And he went through all this list. I finally said, what do you, what, what's the deal? And he goes, well, I can understand people who are destitute, degenerate individuals becoming Christians. But people who lead a more normal life, why, what do they need to be saved from? And the idea is that people, they don't, they don't connect with the fact that we're all sinners that need to be saved. We think, well, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm, you know, middle class. I don't have the Ferrari, but I've got a decent car and got a good job. I got retirement. I, you know, I, I don't really need Jesus Christ. And that kind of a person, it becomes hard. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And our first response to that is, well, I'm not rich. Well, you are compared to 99% of the rest of the world. Not a guilt trip. I mean, I, not my fault I was born in Connecticut and moved to California. Uh, but you know, you know what I mean? And so not many mighty. Uh, and so it's a great thing that God still, though, tries to break through to the rich young rulers of the world and bring them to faith in Christ. Allow me a short rabbit trail. Whenever we see worship in heaven around God's throne in this book, it is carried out orderly. It's not spontaneous in the sense of humans or angels going off script, shouting or running around or being slain in the spirit. There are times when the worshipers fall, but they do it together. They do it on cue when appropriate as part of a very precise liturgy. Think about that the next time somebody tells you that God, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they could no longer control themselves. Or you're in a meeting where just spontaneous outbursts take place. Uh, not to be overly critical, but I, I guess I can say this, we're all friends, right? I get tired of people suggesting that spontaneity is somehow more spiritual than 
uh, any other approach. And that if, if, if people don't just spontaneously start praising the Lord and drawing attention to themselves, uh, then there's no sense of the Holy Spirit there. One of the brothers texted me this morning. He says, hey, it's kind of interesting that people say that when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we lose control. But one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Self-control. And so the Holy Spirit, is he at odds with himself? I I'm going to give you self-control to not be able to control yourself. It doesn't make any sense. And so not being overly critical, I just think we need to think things through sometimes. And um, the way I approach stuff like this, when I feel led to say something like that, I feel someone here must need to hear that uh, because I don't like to spend time on stuff that isn't really out of the text, but perhaps somebody needs to hear that for encouragement and for strengthening. Now you are constantly being seduced. The devil has the world set up in such a way that it appeals to your fleshly lusts. He entices you with material things that you covet. He entices you mentally by the world's false religions and psychologies and philosophies. Remember the bride has no place in a brothel. Jesus brought you out from the brothel. So set your affections on things above, bringing your every thought captive to Jesus. Let's take a look now in verses six through 10 at uh, being prepared as his bride. There's been a great deal of singing in the revelation thus far. One commentator now points out this is the last song of praise in the apocalypse, and it is a divine epithalamium. Epithalamium. That means a song celebrating marriage. I love scholars. They always have to say things that are hard to say. Got to prove their degree was worth it. And so this is the last song, and it's a marriage song. How appropriate. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The four hallelujahs. This sequence is the Bible's hallelujah chorus. It's interesting. It involves falling more than it does standing. So you, you know the hallelujah chorus, right? Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. That's all I know of it. But anyway, and you, I didn't know this. My wife had to teach me this when I was, uh, oh, about 10 years ago, uh, that you're supposed to stand whenever that chorus, right? It's, they, nobody knows why, but you do. And that's okay. I'm not against that. I'm for it. I'm pro-hallelujah chorus. But in the Bible here, these four hallelujahs, a lot of times people are falling down at the same time. So um, I, don't know, I guess you could fall down next time it happens and say it's biblical. Just don't do that here. Uh, our God, our God is the Lord God omnipotent. That sort of ends all discussion, doesn't it? Maybe you're in a religious studies class and they say, well, describe Hinduism, describe Buddhism, describe Confucianism and all these things. And then, you know, describe Christianity. Our God is the Lord God omnipotent. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that we've just compared all religions and found that they're all garbage and junk compared to Christianity, so class dismissed. Who is like him? No one. God reigns now, of course, but forever. And in the Revelation, we're going to read about him establishing his reign on the earth and into eternity. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. The Lamb is the Revelation's favorite title for the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Jesus offered himself on the cross as the sacrifice for sin, as our substitute. Jesus' crucifixion occurred exactly when the lambs for the annual Passover were being slain and offered over in the temple because he was the last Passover lamb. He let us know that he was the last lamb, crying out with a loud voice, it is finished. What was finished is all sacrificial systems by which to approach God. Now the uh, approach was face-to-face in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And to show that, in the temple, the thick veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom so that the Jew could see into that holy place and know that God was on a personal level with them. Now, out of seemingly nowhere, there's a save the date for a wedding. The marriage of the Lamb has come. This word marriage is the same one translated marriage supper in verse 9. The supper is the celebration following the wedding, what we might call the reception. There's a great deal of Bible teaching on the Jewish wedding customs in the first century. I think some of them are a little bit too detailed. Uh, they give too much detail. And I, know, I, I think that there's some basic things that were true of all Jewish weddings uh, at the time and still today. But like celebrations we have, uh, thing, there were some differences as well. And so I, can, uh, I figured I'd consult an organization of Messianic Jews. A Messianic Jew is a Jew, uh, an ethnic Jew who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, who knows that Jesus Christ is their Messiah and Savior. And so who to trust more when talking about Jewish things than a Messianic Jew who witnesses to Jews? And so if you, you can't go say, well, the marriage customs, you can't be making up marriage customs because the Jew knows what they are. And so here are the basics. These are the basic bare bones of the first century Jewish wedding ceremony. The father of the bridegroom either selected or approved a bride for his son. A betrothal followed where the bridegroom gave the bride money or a valuable object such as a ring. A cup of wine was shared to seal their covenant vow. They were legally married at that point, but they did not live together or engage in sexual relations for at least nine months to a year. The groom busied himself preparing a place for his bride, and the bride focused on her preparations. Although the bride knew to expect her groom any time after about nine months, she did not know the exact day or time he could come earlier or later. The father of the groom gave his final approval for the son's return for the bride, and then the bridegroom came to take his bride home where a joyous marriage supper ensued. And so that, those are the basics. And I'm sure you can see the parallels to Jesus as our heavenly bridegroom. God so loved the world that the Father gave his only begotten Son, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He made the arrangement, uh, as it were. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. While he's gone, he's given us the Holy Spirit as our engagement guarantee. We prepare for his coming by patiently waiting and serving him. And he is coming to resurrect and rapture his bride at a time that we don't know, at an imminent time. Later in chapter 19, when Jesus returns with us to earth, we will already be clothed in wedding apparel. And so the marriage must therefore be in heaven between the rapture and the second coming. And what happens on the earth after the second coming is the marriage supper. 
both the 1,000-year kingdom of God on earth and eternity would constitute the marriage supper. The marriage supper, I'm sure there's going to be some real eating going on, some really great pasta and stuff or whatever it is you think you need to eat. Uh, but um, it's not that for eternity we're going to be sitting at a really long table eating. Uh, the idea is that the millennial kingdom and eternity are like one great wedding celebration that never ends. The words, his wife has made herself ready, are amplified in verse 8, where we read, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Illustrating God's gift of salvation using clothing is my absolute favorite way of talking about the gospel because anyone can understand it. There's a passage in the book of Zechariah uh, that explains what I mean. The high priest of Israel at the time was Joshua, and he's in the temple, and it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, Joshua would have been dressed in beautiful garments of the high priest. They were uh, maybe the most beautiful and costly garments on the earth, covered with precious gems. But the scripture goes on to say, Now, G uh, Joshua, the high priest, was clothed with filthy garments. He had, on earth, he had his beautiful garments, but heaven saw them as filthy. No matter how costly and beautiful Joshua looked on earth, in heaven he looked as though he was wearing filthy garments. The Bible describes every human being that way. It says that all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. The Lord didn't leave Joshua in those rags. It says he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now, Zechariah or Joshua didn't know any of this was going on. This is God illustrating the free gift of salvation. The exchange of the filthy garment for the robe is a free gift and it illustrates God's grace and salvation. It's made possible by the death of Jesus on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, it's as if he took from you your filthy garments and gave you a robe of righteousness so that you can go to heaven. You have the right clothing to get into heaven. And that's what the, uh, this, the illustration is about. And so when it says in verse 8, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, uh, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Something that Isaiah said clears that up. So is it God's gift or do we contribute to it? There seems like two things going on. So Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So the wedding garment is given to you. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift. There are zero works of righteousness involved. But simultaneously, as saved individuals, we make ourselves ready by the righteous acts we perform serving Jesus on the earth. You don't earn or add to your salvation. You earn rewards that will adorn your robe. You want to adorn your robe to look beautiful for your bridegroom. In the typical wedding, every bride wants to look beautiful, right? And every gown is just a little bit different, adorned a little bit differently. Uh, and it wouldn't, you know, I mean, we, without putting any emphasis on material or physical things, no bride comes and sits in the bridegroom and says, 
I want to be as ugly as I can today. Rat out my hair, tear my garments, go into the, you know, uh, one of the garden areas and get some dirt that I can rub all over myself. I'm going to have one shoe on and one shoe off. Uh, I'm going to put my train around my head, uh, you know, and, and that would be weird. Don't you think? Maybe you don't. Maybe you got married that way. But anyway, and, and so that's the idea. You know, I, I mean, uh, the bride wants to look beautiful. And all of us, I know some of us guys, we think, I, I, do I have to be called a bride? Come on. It's a little effeminate. But uh, anyway, I'm in so much trouble now. Uh, for purposes of illustration, brides want to look beautiful. And so you, you work to earn rewards to adorn your gown for Jesus. And it's not a competition, you know. Uh, nobody's going to say, hey. <laughs> it's just a personal thing between you and the Lord. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. The church is the bride, the guests are the rest of the saved from all time, <coughs> Old Testament saints, as well as tribulation martyrs, along with believers alive in earthly bodies at the second coming. Those who get saved in the millennium will be fashionably late arriving guests. <coughs> Verse 10, and I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Seeing an angel is always terrifying. I think too of everything John had seen at this point. Uh, it, it doesn't surprise us that John would fall, but the angel quickly corrects him because only Jesus is uh, deserving of worship. Angels consider themselves our fellow servants, and I find that amazing since we're such bucketheads. Uh, from our perspective, they are glorious, but they consider themselves with proper humility. That's great. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's popular today to read the Revelation as what scholars call apocalyptic literature. I hate to spend time on this, and I, I've done it several times, but it's important. It's happening today. Used to be 10 years ago, if you said you were reading Revelation, people go, oh, wow, that's, you know, more power to you because nobody can understand what's going on in there. It's filled with signs and symbols. Now... People say, oh, that's apocalyptic literature, and you scratch your head, and they say, yeah, it, it's a genre of literature that means it doesn't have to be literal. It's just, just out there. It's just writing, and uh, you know, it's, it's almost like fiction, but it's spiritual fiction. The Revelation is not apocalyptic literature. You know how I know that? Because here it's called prophecy. And in chapter 22, the revelation is categorized as prophecy four more times. I love it when God doesn't want us to get things wrong. And he repeats it. And he says, guess what, guys? This is prophecy. It's prophecy. It's prophecy. It's prophecy. It's prophecy. I think it's apocalyptic literature. I don't care what you think. It's a prophecy. It's mostly future. Uh, in fact, from chapter four until the end of the book, it is future. All this talk about bridegrooms and brides and betrothals should suggest a romantic mood. Guys, hang in there with me, please. Sadly, the Lord's coming in the clouds for his bride is sometimes used as a rebuke. You're sternly warned that you don't want to be caught during uh, doing certain questionable things when Jesus comes. You know, Jesus is coming any minute. Do you want to be caught watching that movie? Binge watching that show in a tattoo parlor? <laughs> 
not me, boy. You know, I'm... And, and people do. I mean, it's like, oh, you know. You know what? That turns a believer into a bridezilla. Because then you start to share that, well, you don't want to be caught here. And everybody's on edge about being caught by Jesus instead of being excited that your bridegroom is coming back. You know, if you consider yourself a bride, you're not going to get caught. I mean, hopefully as a bride, you're not thinking, I wonder if I can have more than one bachelorette party before Joe comes for me. You know, I mean, you're, you can't wait to get married. It's, it's, a, it's romantic. For our purposes today, uh, I'd like to think more in terms of this, uh, like the Song of Solomon does. And for our purposes today, Jesus is the bridegroom and you are his betrothed bride. So listen to this. This is the attitude we need. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, my fair one, come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing is come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs. The vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Oh, my dove in the cleft of the rocks, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. That's the way the Lord wants you to think about his coming for you. He's not coming to try and trap you. I mean, I understand there's a certain... Uh, exhortation there. Uh, and I understand, I'm not saying that it could never be used in an exhortive way, but this is how the Lord wants to think you to think of his coming. He wants your heart to be racing and thrilled to see him. Right now he's looking through the lattice, as it were. He hasn't been given the green light by the Father to come and resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers. But we should have that anticipation that he's coming any minute. And the more you understand that Jesus is your bridegroom and you, his beloved bride, the better prepared and ready you'll choose to be.